Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 34, Thanksgiving. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your DCCU apologist, Dr. Awkward. This episode, we go over some news and some reasons to be thankful. Man, that last episode was long. Um, rather than abstract societal structures from ancient stagnant cultures, this time we're going to relax and just go through some of the upcoming films, answer a few questions, and in the spirit of the Thanksgiving holiday, let's find some things to be grateful for. So let's just see how this goes. Thanksgiving is probably my favorite holiday, not just because of the food, family, and friends, but it's a holiday that gives you a chance to realign yourself and be really appreciative before going into those dark months of winter. It's a holiday that promotes good character right in the name, and thankfulness is one of those defining traits that really separates Superman's altruism and heroism from others. He doesn't owe us anything. There's no debt to pay, no obligation to serve, no duty to a guilty conscience. Instead, Superman's serving because he gets to, and he's glad and grateful that he can. Not in some sort of empty way where there isn't cost and trials, hard decisions and doubt at times, but where it's worth all of that in the end. Superman doesn't resent having to protect humanity. Instead, it's his privilege. One that he didn't have to take up, but one which is fulfilling despite it all. Now, how can we cultivate character like that? Well, one way to frustrate the development of that kind of character is to focus on what you don't have. To make comparisons and be envious of Marvel's success or Batman's popularity, to be jealous or embittered by any slight to Superman or an alleged deprivation of some sort. Some of those distinctions are more imagined than real, but when you're trying to be grateful, it helps to start with appreciating what you have. For example, I'm thankful that I get to share my thoughts and have people who want to listen. I'm really appreciative that you're choosing to listen, and I'm glad that we can focus together on what's going right rather than obsess over some perception of what's wrong. Now, unrealistic optimism bias can be detrimental, but Harvard social psychologist Professor Dan Gilbert suggests that maybe a tint to the world is best. Yes, that's true. I'm, you're pointing out an age-old tension in psychology between seeing the world as it is and seeing it as as we wish it were. Which of these things should we do? The answer is neither. The answer is neither. When we see the world utterly realistically, we can be depressed about it. It's a hard place. But when we see the world utterly fantastically, we don't take the kinds of actions we need to take in the present to ensure ourselves a good future. I love the metaphor of rose-colored glasses. That's the way to view the world. They're rose-colored, meaning there is a tint. You are seeing a rosier future than we will really experience. But they're glasses. They're not opaque right? They're not blinders. You actually are seeing the world. And if there's a train coming, it's a little bit rose-tinted, but it's a train. So you don't deny reality. And if you need to, you can lament. But at the same time, you should praise more and focus on the future rather than on the past. We won't go too much more into this, but basically it's know thyself. You want to engage in a little bit of metacognition. Think about how you're thinking and fine-tune your own outlook and expectations to maximize good behavior, right? So if you're the kind of person whose expectations go wildly out of whack and find yourself disappointed, then bring those expectations down. If you're somebody who finds themselves very depressed because you've brought your expectations way too low and just see only doom and gloom, well, maybe have a little bit of an optimism bias. So just take some time, think about how you're thinking, and exert your will over your own mind and emotions. There is a ton to be thankful for, but just let me quickly run down some of our biggest sources of substantive news. Because in a click and copy culture, we sometimes forget to give credit and thanks and attribution to those journalists who brought us the information in the first place. This is by no means a comprehensive list, but to credit these five journalists, we've got Keith Stakevich in a July issue of Entertainment Weekly. We have Ian Nathan in September's Empire UK. And then Nick Day Simlian did a Suicide Squad feature in December. 
Uh, we have Matt Madum in December's Total Film. And finally, Stephen Weintraub, uh, the EIC of Collider and his in-depth interview with Charles Rovin. We should thank the filmmakers, the production teams, the post houses, and more for honoring the spirit of secrecy and surprise for the movie. It's my understanding that far more of Star Wars has been spoiled at this point relative to how well the DC films have been kept under wraps. And in that spirit, we should also thank the scoopers too. I know, I know, but whether their information is always reliable, they have a certain amount of discretion to not ruin the film-going experience for everyone, even beyond their direct audience. And they're mostly doing that, I think. I generally don't comment too heavily on rumored stuff, but those rumors and those scoops drive a lot of the discussion and the excitement for some of the most passionate people in the community. So they have their role too. There's a tension between wanting to know and wanting to be surprised. And so we have to appreciate how the press, production, and marketing have all been careful to observe that balance. Now, of course, there's way more important and meaningful things to be thankful for. These are just movies, comic books, and superheroes. But it's okay to be appreciative of these little things that you enjoy. It all adds up. It's okay to enjoy life and to be thankful that you can select from a wealth of media to enjoy. By the time you're listening to this, I've probably watched the first few episodes of Jessica Jones. I could watch as many as four DC TV shows a week. American Alien is looking good and Star Wars opens in just weeks. It's a great time to be a fan of all of this stuff. Okay, enough gushing. Let's get to talking about each of our films a little bit. Okay, so for Man of Steel, I've got no shortage of questions from you, the listeners, and I'm sorry I've only been able to just barely scratch the surface of everything in the mailbox. I used to be able to reply to every email individually, but I am really far behind at this point. Uh, generally, the blog is probably a better place if you've got a pressing question, because I figure that everybody can see the answer. Maybe. So that's kind of the theory there. Uh, anyways, since I'm not tied to a theme, I can answer some miscellaneous questions that never quite fit anywhere. And let's do um, let's do these three. We've got uh, Rousey versus Home, uh, The Fortress of Solitude and Hair Color. Okay, so UFC 193 was this past Sunday, and I guess because last episode touched on fighting, I got several emails drawing parallels. I hesitate to make as many connections as the emails did, but I totally agree with at least one thing. It shows that underdogs can win. I think Rousey was the overwhelming favorite to the tune of 9-1 to one before the odds came down and closed around something like 5-1. to one. So simply put, probabilities and odds are just that. They are a chance and not a certainty. So even with all the odds makers and the wisdom of the crowds and people betting on the match, the underdog prevailed. I've been doing this for 15 years, man. And let me tell you what, anybody can beat anybody on any given day. You know, even even reporters and fans and even you when this fight was first announced. Kevin Alley's like, I'm not flying over there for a 15 second fight. It'll be over in 15 seconds. And but it's just... Freddie Roach said it. A lot of people said it. Now, for people who said they knew that that was going to happen, we could say some fun things about hindsight bias. Um, and there's other things that we could layer on, like alleged overconfidence and more. But I think uh, let's just move on. Uh, next, I got an interesting question about whether we will see the Arctic Fortress of Solitude again. And I think I've said in the past the scout ship could be recovered by Superman and used as such. But I've also noted that it's much easier to access the Arctic today than ever before. In fact, if you have a modified diesel truck running jet fuel, any tourist can get to the Arctic today. In the same way that Mount Everest was once unconquerable, but is now nearly a tourist attraction, and has cell phone coverage all the way to the top, Antarctica is now being traversed in Toyota pickup trucks. Anyone with enough money can make it to the South Pole as part of a vacation package. How are they able to do it in a normal pickup truck? The main modification that they've made is they've taken diesel engines in these trucks and they've converted them to run on jet fuel. The reason for the jet fuel
fuel is because jet fuel is formulated to work at low temperatures anyway. When jets are flying at 32,000 feet, it's minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit up there, so the fuel has to be able to flow at very low temperatures. So by modifying the trucks to run on jet fuel, they get rid of the problem with diesel fuel turning to jelly in cold temperatures. The Arctic is certainly more secure than a lot of other places on Earth, but it's more accessible than you think. In fact, transpolar flights are now commonplace for flights between North America and Asia, with planes crossing over the North Pole daily. So if Superman wants his solitude, he might have to consider someplace else, perhaps a little less terrestrial, like putting his fortress in orbit. Orbit isn't inaccessible to humans either, but the difficulty of getting there makes it more like the Arctic of the 20th century. Of course, I'm putting the cart before the horse. Before settling where the scout ship might stand in as a fortress of solitude, we've got to ask, how does he get it out of Metropolis to begin with? The scout ship was estimated to be 300 meters long. That makes it roughly the size of a large aircraft carrier. Now, Superman's strong, strong enough to collide with the scout ship, change its course by several degrees so that it misses its shot when trying to take the C-17 out. But I just don't know if he's strong enough to lift the entire scout ship on his own and just take it wherever he wants. At the same time, I'm not sure what humanity could do with it either. Aircraft carriers are usually built by the water and assembled in the water. There's no infrastructure that lets you move an aircraft carrier if it were to suddenly appear in downtown Manhattan. Either a path to the sea would have to be made, or the scout ship would have to be cut up into more manageable pieces. Of course, that's with today's technology. Who knows what Lex Luthor might have in store or how humanity's technology might have changed since the Black Zero event. That said, the easiest way to get that scout ship out of Metropolis is for it to launch itself back into the air. If the essential systems are still intact and you can establish some sort of secondary means of control, the scout ship can fly itself out of there. And while there's a lot of possibilities that we can imagine, I think for Batman v Superman, I wouldn't mind if this didn't take up much screen time at all or if it's basically silent on the issue. Man of Steel presented us with a Clark that had to suffer through years of solitude. And when he's on screen in Batman v Superman, if he's not doing super heroics, it would be nice to see him interacting with people rather than operating silently in the fortress. But for now, let's move on. Um, this last random Man of Steel question, I've had a lot of people ask me over the years whether I'm bothered by Amy Adams having red hair compared to traditional black hair. And I think I've been procrastinating on this one because I don't have anything deep or meaningful or insightful to say. It doesn't bother me. Um, I don't think tradition should be the final arbiter, but... Um, you know, wait, you know what? I think I can spitball something here. Yeah, let's let's talk about precedent. So um, if you analogize it to precedent, legal precedent or stare decisis, uh, that's a Latin abbreviation for to stand by a decision and not disturb the undisturbed. Um, okay, this is, <laughs> is half-baked and off the top of my head, but let's see. Basically, in super simple terms, stare decisis or precedent means that a court should have to consider how previous courts have decided the same issue as part of their decision, right? That makes sense so that there's a continuity of decisions so that um, there's fairness, right? It'd be strange if you walked into court and experienced a different result uh, on the same kind of factors as somebody just before you, right? So the way it works is if the previous court, if that precedent came from a higher court, then you're generally bound to decide the same way. And if that previous court was the same court, uh, you are strongly presumed to decide the same way. And if that previous court was a parallel court or a lower court, then the precedent is merely persuasive. It's uh, offering guidance, but you don't have to follow it. So in all these cases, tradition and precedent is not absolute, and its weight varies in all these circumstances and with the underlying reasoning. So there's judgment involved. There's discretion involved. You're applying principles and reasons used by prior courts. You're not just blindly saying, that's the decision. So apply to something as trivial as hair color. 
there isn't a terrible amount of reasoning or principle behind the selection in the first place on which to base future decisions. Lois's hair color isn't this defining characteristic central to who she is as a character. And further, the effect of that tradition, that precedent, that stare decisis, applies mainly when the matter is undisturbed. In other words, there's a consistent continuity of how it's applied. But if you look throughout the history of Lois's hair color, it's been a range of of colors from uh, Noel Neal's red hair to Erica Durant to Kate Bodsworth. I didn't prep for this, and you might remember me as somebody a little dismissive of minute color variations like oyster or eggshell white. And I can only imagine the range of names for hair colors that I just call black and brown. <laughs> um, Lois had dark red hair in the Fleischer cartoons and in some of the comics in the 90s. So this is something that we might call unsettled law, something where there is no definitive single answer. And in a case or circumstance like this, where there's not a settled law, there's no higher court, and there's no previous decision by the same court, uh, at least for Man of Steel, right? Batman v Superman, there is starry decisis where you'd respect the decisions made by Man of Steel. So you wouldn't suddenly recast Lois or suddenly change her hair color in a way that upsets the continuity between Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. However, there would be this large body of persuasive previous decisions across history of Lois showing how other people have decided this question. And you'd give the most influential works a little more weight and uh, consider them a little more persuasive. But if you take it all together, there is this tendency towards black hair, but it isn't absolute. It isn't binding on a film adaptation, which has its own new continuity. And so each continuity is its own court or its own arbiter of of what will happen within its own story. So basically, without a strong underlying reason or explanation for why black hair must be the color, it's basically a balancing test between the benefits of casting Amy Adams against a break with some of tradition, but not all. And to me, that makes the decision a no-brainer. You cast Amy Adams, right? You can apply this kind of procedural reasoning to a lot of other tradition-based decisions. Now, certainly, Lois's occupation as a journalist has much deeper significance and reasoning behind it. And that would take more careful consideration in changing than something as trivial as hair color. If the goals of your story are to tell a traditional Superman story in some regard, in, in, in other words, you're trying to capture that larger mythos. If you're not, right, it shouldn't be hard to understand why prior precedent becomes largely inapplicable to a story like, say, um, Superman's Secret Identity, where Lois was an interior designer and of Indian descent, right? Okay, so there's more nuance to it, but the short summary is that tradition in and of itself is not the end-all or the be-all arbiter of how characters should be adapted to another medium. It's a consideration, it's a factor, yeah, but not the only consideration. And we can use this to talk about even some of the more controversial decisions, like whether Jonathan lives or whether Superman should kill. But we won't for now, uh, except to say, well, let's make it the thing I'm grateful for, for Man of Steel. I'm thankful that the filmmakers didn't shy away from such risky and controversial decisions because that created genuine stakes for Man of Steel and all future DC films in that same universe. In a world where Jonathan can die and Metropolis can be attacked and the villain can't be stopped without consequences, then you're going to have a world with rich real world consequences and possibilities and tension and suspense. And that just makes for great storytelling. Um, that segues us nicely into our first Batman v Superman question. And this question covers actually several films from slightly different angles. Um, the basic concern is this. Knowing the final outcome of the film, how do you keep the stories engaging? And uh, you can see how that applies to all the different films, right? So for Batman v Superman, we know that they formed the Justice League. So what could possibly be at stake in the fight, right? For uh, Wonder Woman, the concern is that it's a period piece and we know that Diana survives into present day. So how do we still have tension in the conflict knowing that she prevails? And you have similar concerns for the other films if their timelines are shift around. And that's certainly a valid point and it's a genuine challenge, but it's not an insurmountable one. 
Um, I've got a clip here from Brian Glazer on Apollo 13. One that came to mind again and again that I want to talk to you about is Apollo 13. So I, I don't know if you'll agree that um, with me that that is innately suspenseful. Yeah, it's very suspenseful. It was the goal to make it suspenseful. And it was hard to do because... That's what I was thinking. It's because... We know what happens at the end. Exactly. We know what happens in the end, which is the most important factor. Um, And yet it's unbelievably suspenseful, even though I assume, I don't know if you had any data on how many people actually knew that they all got back okay. Did you know anything about what the audience was expecting on that front? No, we didn't. We didn't know. We, We assumed it was a pretty high number, though. I can tell mm-hmm. you how we created suspense, if you want. Tell me. If that's that's, what that's, I, that's why we're here. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, we created suspense by living inside the psyche of these guys, these astronauts, spending a little more time than people are comfortable uh, creating, showing their lives and their lives with their families and people that are really important to them. So once they got on that rocket and that engine is blowing them up, off into outer space... <laughs> You're cutting to their families all the time. In fact, that one girl at Cape Canaveral is crying and she sees her husband go up is, um, you know, it, it gets you really emotional. You often are cutting to the family or the priest or, you know, people in the external world that are really, really important to those three astronauts in their lives. So we can see from Man of Steel how suspense and engagement was created even when we knew he was going to prevail in the end. And that addresses another question that I received, which is, whether Superman is going to get a greater character arc in Batman v Superman than in Man of Steel? And my answer is a qualified yes. Now, simply by necessity, Henry Cavill is going to have less screen time in Batman v Superman than in Man of Steel. However, the character of Superman is going to have more screen time and he's going to have more tests to his character, more challenges to overcome as Superman than Clark did as a rookie in costume in Man of Steel. I'm not going to go so far to say that this is a seasoned Superman. He's been doing this for two years at most, but this is a Superman undergoing conflict and characterization as Superman, knowing that this is his calling. This is what he wants to do. So we're going to get into that character. But because time is at a premium, expect that characterization to be sort of densely packed and layered. Don't expect a lot of hand-holding or a lot of decompression or the luxury of 22 episodes for a character to learn a lesson. The characterization and the character arcs are going to be closer to sort of real-world personalities and changes. So you should expect the character through subtle ways rather than overt exposition. And you should look for growth and change in similar subtle ways unless there's a road to Damascus type change, right? And in in a certain sense, this is Superman too. So it's not like we want his character to be wildly changing all the time. One of the benefits of the realistic approach is that we get to see real character growth. But at the same time, Clark has a good and strong character. So we want him to stay on that path and on that arc. We don't want to see him wildly swinging in personality. But along those lines, remember that this is still a grounded world where Clark, the character, He's a person. He's not a saint, an icon, or a symbol. You know, Superman might have taken on mythological stature inside the world, but Clark, he's still just a guy. He's just two years into his calling, and it's filled with challenges and difficulties, but he's still a man, just a person underneath all of that. He can still get discouraged, he can get angry, and he can get upset. Of course, that also means he has to show character. He has to be courageous, be brave, have endurance, have faith, have hope. He's got to forgive and he's got to forge alliances. And I would adjust my expectations if I was approaching Batman v Superman thinking, okay, this time Superman is going to be perfect. Now, given Man of Steel, the groundedness of the approach, and the scenes that we've seen with Martha and Lois giving him encouragement, as well as the emotions on his face, this is very much still the continuing character piece of somebody who shares our psychology. He thinks and feels and wills and acts like we do and would in a relatable and a realistic fashion. And that means that there's going to be passion in the conflict and genuine emotion in the fight. You know, a seasoned, saintly paragraph gone Superman, well, he wouldn't end up fighting in the first place. But if somehow you forced him to, that fight would just be sort of a formality of forced contrivances where Superman still isn't really participating. 
It's just the plot forcing him to. And there's something empty to that kind of fight with only one-sided intention. Maybe it's because Superman is holding himself back and in check so much that the fight is really a farce. It's like a father wrestling with his little boy, never actually in jeopardy. Instead, we're going to get a Superman who is feeling real emotion, who's actually a person, a character, and who has a natural mind. And that's going to give us a fight with more emotional content similar to that epic world of cardboard fight in Justice League Unlimited. I feel like I live in a world made of cardboard, always taking constant care not to break something, to break someone, never allowing myself to lose control, even for a moment or someone could die. But you can take it, can't you, big man? What we have here is a rare opportunity for me to cut loose and show you just how powerful I really am. Superman's imperfect human emotions gives the fight weight, and it creates an opportunity for examples of true character. In a context where Superman is enraged, if he chooses instead to set those emotions aside and forgive, there's something in that which takes more character than if he was never angered in the first place because he's so overwhelmingly more powerful than his opponent. Right, And so for Batman v Superman, that means that Superman will be hurt. He's going to be made mortal and he's going to have emotions. But it's all for the sake of the story, for his characterization and for the greater universe. This is where he would be two years into a profession that nobody knew existed until he created it. This isn't Superman following in the footsteps of the Justice Society, where he could just take the job for granted. Clark is a trailblazer by bringing this superhero world into the the light when even Batman and Wonder Woman shied away. This is a completely new field that has never existed before where he's getting mixed reactions and support to his very existence. And it wouldn't make sense for Clark to be a faultless and perfect paragon yet. Even if you're in a well-established field, I can think of very few where somebody with just two years of experience considers themselves unable to improve having reached their pinnacle in just two years. Right. And that's part of the reason that this is a perfect opportunity for them to fight. Superman is still green enough where the two can fight earnestly, a little more experience, and there's no way this fight happens organically and without lots and lots of contrivance. And people are going to come away from this respecting both heroes as men rather than Superman as somebody who naively holds back and Batman as somebody who is so filled with uncontrollable rage that he puts himself in the position to fight a god. Instead, with a green Superman, Batman actually has a reasonable chance and Superman has to put up a real fight. And while I've focused a ton on the fight, the stakes, the emotional weight, and the characterization of that fight is earned outside the ring. But it's also exhibited through the fight as well. And if you've followed all the news around Rousey versus Hom, you know that something that was a controlled sporting event and a contractual payday somehow took on an entire narrative, complete with a backstory, motivations and intentions, emotion and character, and it had a beginning, middle, end, and a promise of a sequel layered upon it by the public. We don't watch these things clinically and dispassionately. Even completely casual viewers find themselves interjecting story, calling the ending a karmic result of bad sportsmanship or some other narrative. So imagine how much more meaning is going to be layered into an actually scripted story. There is drama, character, story, and honor in fights. It's why we loved Rocky. It's why we're going to love Creed. It's something easily marketed, which is going to have mass appeal. But that fight isn't just superficial. It's part of what's going to forge what it means to be a public superhero and a member of the Justice League in this world. Think about your superhero experience. Every major event comic book and story arc, every comic book movie, nearly without exception, it ends with or includes a significant fight sequence because that's just how these stories are told. That emphasis in the marketing or in the title doesn't cause the content to diverge from good storytelling. It merely highlights that which people were already excited to see. Okay, I think I'm going to skip over Lex Luthor for now and pick something to be thankful for. Um, okay, I'm cheating. I'm looking at what's next in my notes and trying to make up a segue. Okay, I got it. Maybe. Um, wait. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Um, 
I'm thankful that Batman v Superman has been confirmed to follow that same internally consistent style and reality, which made Man of Steel such a rich film to explore and speculate upon. Um, David Goyer, Jesse Eisenberg, Charles Roven, they've all commented on that tone and that reality and that uh, sincerity, right? At the same time, I'm terribly excited at how Batman and Wonder Woman and Lex Luthor all open up this world and give the filmmakers even more access to DC lore. I would have watched a Superman sequel without Batman or Wonder Woman, but I'm thankful that the WB had the foresight to allow Snyder to use the crown jewels of the DC pantheon so that this film is going to be accessible to more fans and to a broader audience without compromising their approach. It's still in that spirit and that tone of Man of Steel, but it's got this undeniably attractive fight card, guest stars, and pop culture significance, which means more theater seats filled and more hope for the future of the DC films. Okay, that's uh, all over the place. What I mean to say is I'm thankful that uh, we got a Batman reboot, which means that we're going to get an ultra successful Superman film and more Superman films down the road. Uh, That segues into... (laughs) Man, that doesn't segue at all. (laughs) Somewhere along the way, I think I lost the plot. I think I was supposed to segue off of either Charles Rovin um, or accessibility into the Suicide Squad. So that's what we're going to do now. I've completely lost my place. I'm just going to ramble then. Um, I had several emails... um, lamenting about Charles Roven confirming that Suicide Squad was always intended as a PG-13 film and that that's their target for the future DC films, although not an absolute rule. Uh, Give me a second. I need to (laughs) catch up in my notes. Um, By the way, I didn't have time to compile all the people who asked all these questions. I normally try to do that. And I sort of glossed over the questions that were in that Batman v Superman segment we just talked about and uh, sort of just jumped into answering them. So uh, sorry about that. This is a holiday special. So this is about as uh, prepared as I can get with the alternative being no episode. So be grateful. All right. (laughs) Um, Let me go back for a second. Uh, Real quick, those Batman v Superman questions were, uh, one, will we see a Superman character arc? And uh, I think I did say that we would see one. Um, Two, will Superman be a moral ideal in Batman v Superman? And uh, I didn't say that question, um, but I think I said he'd still be a person with you know, two years of experience and he's not going to suddenly be this enlightened Buddha or something. Um, and three, does the title overemphasize the fight and make them less heroic? And, uh, I think I answered that one and four, we skipped four. That was the Lex Luthor one. So might've been nice to have that roadmap up front. I'm sorry. Uh, let's do the suicide squad roadmap then. So, uh, there were a ton of questions. Um, I, I don't think I have the time to go through all of them tonight. So let me just pick two. Um, Okay, one, does the PG-13 rating hurt the Suicide Squad? Okay. And uh, two, does the introduction of magic and sorcery damage the reality of the universe? Those are uh, two good questions. Um, Let's do the first one. Look, for the PG-13 rating, I, I try not to fret about things I can't change. And given that this film was always intended to be PG-13 and that principal photography has already wrapped, this is mostly a non-issue. I mean, really what it comes down to at this point is managing your expectations. And the people who are still concerned are really the exception, okay? The public at large, they don't have the slightest inkling who or what the Suicide Squad is. Any exposure that they've had to the squad will be through relatively tame material by comparison. You've got the Justice League, You've got Arrow, Lego Batman, uh, Escape from Arkham, and the comic books. And for the vast majority of the audience, none of even that has come across their radar. None of even that is going to register. So the main framework for your average audience member is going to be that this is a supervillain film within the same universe as Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Wonder Woman, and Justice League. So they're going to expect 
basically a PG-13 movie. Suicide Squad was never a Vertigo title. It was never in a line that was similar to Marvel's Max imprint. So the source material has always been squarely in the realm of basically over-the-counter mainstream comic books. And given the fact that Ayer was the one that pitched the squad to Warner Brothers, he would have known this up front before penning the script, before shooting the film. So the film-going audience isn't going to miss any of that graphic content that you'd never find in the pages of the comics themselves or in any previous Suicide Squad adaptation. Of course, there's another argument, and that's, okay, we don't know who the Suicide Squad are, but I know who David Ayer is, and he's a notable filmmaker, and he makes R-rated movies, right? So perhaps Sun will be disappointed to see him step down from his traditional R rating. And that's been the linchpin of many arguments which have been speculating up to this announcement or this uh, confirmation that Suicide Squad would be R-rated. But I don't really find that argument persuasive at all. When you're weighing the two, right, when you consider the concerns of the studio versus the filmography of the filmmaker, the studio always wins, right? Um, If you look at Christopher Nolan, if you look at Brian Singer, they both stepped down from rated R films to do PG-13 superhero films, which were widely acclaimed. People like those films and air has done or will do the same. Now, again, principal photography is in the can. It's wrapped. So if you're still clinging to visions of an R-rated film, well, you've got a little over... I think uh, nine months to adjust your expectations, right? If only to sort of mitigate or ease that transition. Let's consider some of the benefits, be thankful for, let's say, of a PG-13 rating. A PG-13 rating means that you get a bigger budget, and that means you get a bigger and a better cast, you get better visual effects, you get larger action sequences, and more. It makes it tonally consistent with the rest of the DC films, and Batman's brand won't get compromised. That content is going to be acceptable for a broader audience, and historically, that means a bigger box office. Basically, we're taking an already risky film and we're mitigating that risk to give everybody a chance to succeed. And in a way, this approach is actually more artful. You have to rely on implication over exhibition. And the theater of the mind may push Ayer's filmmaking and present something a little more intense and imaginative than simply just putting that graphic content on the screen. I think the way to think about this is there are movies which, if you haven't seen them in a while and you're trying to think back upon your recollections, you're not completely certain whether it was a hard PG-13 or a soft R. And Rovin indicated that this is going to be that kind of film. Speaking of Rovin, we have that second question. So people who are really invested in the reality and the groundedness of the DC films, some of them have expressed concerns about the introduction of magic. And Charles Rovin sort of addresses that they're looking for that same kind of tone throughout all the films, the same kind of groundedness and reality and realism. So I wouldn't worry. Uh, My own prejudice against magic is that it's often boundless and unregulated. And that means that stories that have magic tend to suffer from internal inconsistency, right? The magic often appears as this sort of chaotic and arbitrary omnipotence. Suddenly there is the power to do some convenient thing at one point, but not at some other logical point to do the same thing right? Uh, Usually to compensate, the reality is sort of dialed down. The fantasy is dialed up. Your suspension of disbelief has to follow some more, let's say, fairy tale kind of rules rather than that sort of rigid realism and strict internal consistency of, say, Man of Steel. But if you think about it, that's simply the historical trend. That's not a creative mandate. There's nothing stopping the DC Brain Trust from keeping a close eye on and careful watch over magic within their world, and then writing it with deliberation and measured internal consistency. In fact, they already have. Um, We've talked a lot about Superman's powers on this show, but right from the very beginning, I said that we would never get into the actual underlying mechanism of those powers because they're science fiction, because they're essentially magic. Uh, Here's Neil deGrasse Tyson with comedian Eugene Merman discussing Superman's powers on Star Talk. Amoro Jean-Baptiste asks, is there anything scientific to the different reaction of Superman cells to red sun versus yellow sun? Ooh, good yeah. question. Would would someone potentially be able to fly or under uh, one sun and not under another? Yeah, yeah. So we 
think we know stars very well at yeah. this point. It's one of the triumphs of 20th century modern astrophysics. How stars are born, how they live out their lives, how they die, what their properties are. We yeah. have catalogs. Who their friends are, what their favorite book. Well, figuratively, stars have friends. They're born in clusters. Here's the thing. We know the difference between a yellow star and a red star. You know, one the yellow star is- And is it 10%? <laughs> the yellow star is hotter than the red star, period. Uh-huh. And it gives off a little more white light, okay? A little more yellow light than does the red star. Yeah. It's just light. So if it's light that gave Superman his powers, then and it's and if it's red light that took him away, you know Lex Luthor really can hear you, so you really shouldn't be saying <laughs> things like that. So it's not simply you don't even need kryptonite; you just need a flashlight. We have fully characterized the light emanating from stars. And a red star, if Superman did not have powers on Krypton, yeah, and he, and he has powers on the Earth Sun system, then we we would have had him figured out long ago. So, but even if his skin is like a solar battle battery that absorbs the energy like a oh yeah so if uh the yellow sun absorbs higher and emits a yellow sun emits higher energy light than does a red sun and he could be absorbing it and then red light wouldn't ruin him right away he could be except we know exactly how much energy his skin can absorb and it's infinite no it can't be any more than the light hitting him Right, yeah. and this most of the sun's light is not hitting him. I assure you, Superman needs much more, many more solar panels than what his skin clad with such yes. material could bring him, given the powers that he exhibits. So it's some mystical thing that is, is yeah. not really, even though well. magic's really the only thing that can hurt him. But I understand what you mean. <laughs> so in the scientific sense, Superman's powers are magic or mystical, as Doctor Tyson says. And if you're satisfied with the reality and the internal consistency of Man of Steel, then the DC Brain Trust has already introduced magic into their universe and they can continue to do so in a similar self-consistent manner. Actually, the trickiest part isn't going to be reigning in magic and making it self-consistent, but coming up with an internally consistent history of where that magic was hidden from the world all this time. But I believe they're up to that task. They've committed to a consistency of tone through their first few films, which has the potential to cover these kind of logical quandaries. And even if they don't, well, it's not necessarily the end of the world. The fact is, shared comic book universes have always had to deal with magic. And that might require loosening your grip on reality a little bit. That might be a good thing. By the time that we're several movies deep into the universe, we might be ready for that or want that. If you think about the framework for Suicide Squad, it basically is sending a mundane army of metahumans and people with firearms against a magical threat. And so even in that sort of framework, we understand that magic is something that can be controlled by technology and metahumans. So I don't think we're going to have to worry about that sort of completely unhinged omnipotence that sometimes sort of appears in magic. All right, that's enough wild speculation. Uh, What am I thankful for with Suicide Squad? I'm thankful that so much came together to make this unexpected film possible. I mean, Ayer had to be coming off a success. He had to want to pitch this film. The brain trust had to be ready to hear it and to like his pitch. That talent had to be available. The inclusion of Batman had to be calculated and so much more. And it's just awesome that they're willing to take this smart and calculated risk with Suicide Squad. You know, the diversity of DC's slate and the mystery around Suicide Squad means that some people are anticipating this film even more than Batman v Superman. And the healthier the films and the bigger risks that they're willing to take, the more that we're going to see. Um, Watching Supergirl on a big network like CBS, that's in no small part to the risks taken by Arrow and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which led to The Flash and beyond. And there's a certain safety to Batman v Superman on which the WB has always relied. I mean, they're going to keep making Batman and Superman films until they can't. But this perfect storm of circumstances got us Suicide Squad as a feature film. And that's going to blow the doors of the DC universe open for adaptation. Okay, I'm running a little behind. So last movie for tonight, Wonder Woman. I have a ton of questions about the Steve Trevor photo, but I think I'm going to boil them all down to pushing Wonder Woman's story back to World War One and Steve Trevor's fate in the future. So um, let, let's start with the second one first. If we assume that Chris Pine has to play a character in 2000, 2016, and if World War I was 100 years ago, 
For Chris Pine to be 35 in 1916 and in 2016, we're talking about at least four reasonable generations. You can stretch to three, but that's uh, that's pushing it. And I'm not really a fan of the descendant angle with Pine playing the same role. So maybe my preferences inspire me to look for alternatives. So with the inclusion of magic, there's probably a lot of different ways you could bring Trevor through or across 100 years. But like we've just discussed, unless magic is very carefully and narrowly crafted while logically tailored to the reality in the story, I think my prejudice against magic generally makes me keep looking. And that puts me in sort of a weird position where I hope that Chris Pine doesn't make it to modern day. (laughs) Um, I mean, that's the easiest and the most grounded approach, right? That Chris Pine just plays one period character and that's it. Now it's way too early to uh, seriously speculate on that. So I'll just leave that for now. As always, I keep my mind open and I'm ready to be wrong or convinced otherwise. Um, Having a descendant doppelganger might be awesome. I don't know. But on to Wonder Woman going back a century instead of three quarters of a century. And we can run this kind of change through that rubric that we discussed before with Lois's hair color. Is there a binding higher court? No. Adaptations are always cases of first impression. Was there a binding prior precedent in the same court? No, unless Batman v Superman speaks to it. And is there persuasive precedent elsewhere? Is this settled law? And yes, there is a ton of established origins, but they're far from settled. Although overall, they do tend to point to World War II. And that means that you've got a lot of freedom to consider the underlying reasons and perhaps go your own way accordingly. Uh, we're not going to get into all that, but certainly World War One allows Wonder Woman to touch on at least three interesting aspects of her character, uh, war, feminism, and immortality. And it gives us greater clarity through the lens of time. Maybe, you know, history is always more complex than we give it credit for, but within the scope of a superhero film, the First World War or the Great War uh, married 20th century technology with 19th century tactics, resulting in horrific casualties. But that's a suitable bridge for an Amazon warrior to sort of cross into modern man's world. The allies were involved, so we've got superficially similar dynamics with American participation. The scale is large enough so that she can be invisible to history, even if she has an impact within her own story. And with feminism, all I will say is that with progress, freedom, choice, and diversity, the topic is far more complex and nuanced today. And that gives rise to a chorus of voices and opinions, but they're not completely in accord. And generally, this isn't an issue for many female leads because few are expected to carry the banner of all womankind and to represent the perfect ideal and every stripe and every creed without compromise. But when the CBS Supergirl show is praised as feminist, but then also criticized as anti-feminist, someone like me can't help but feel that that's a tricky minefield to navigate and that Wonder Woman might benefit from tackling topics from a simpler time. If you go back a hundred years and you strip away the progress, the freedom, the choice, and the diversity, the issue becomes much more elemental, more crystalline, and it's easier to find unity, consensus, and the ideal. That's the same trick they used to justify Captain America's ideals when they were born from an era with a little less ambiguity. If Wonder Woman were to fight for women's suffrage then, who today would criticize her for it? And I think you could sort of apply that a little further. The dynamics of romantic relationships were more simple then, and that can allow them to explore that aspect of Wonder Woman in the past while leaving her unfettered in the complicated present. You know, anything she does a hundred years ago might be seen as positively progressive But in the present, reasonable minds can differ wildly on how the sexes can or should interact. And that very same act deemed progressive 100 years ago might cause some to claim that Diana is suddenly setting women back decades, right? (laughs) Um, Avoiding modern romantic relationships, that might seem political or cowardly, maybe. But it can also be a poignant piece of characterization if you handle it correctly. You could tie it in with her immortality, which gives her a really unique perspective, and setting it a century back really lets us get into that characterization. We still have living World War II veterans, and many of the movie-going demographic have secondhand World War II memories still. So it's still a part of our living history, but World War I is well and truly in the history books for us. That kind of distance and separation will help Diana tap into her 
inner Highlander, right? <laughs> um, it also seems to slot nicely into the uh, Strauss Howe generational theory here discussed by Michael Stevens, host of Vsauce. Strauss and Howe call each social mood a turning. A turning describes the way society will act by either establishing, accepting, challenging, or fracturing in lieu of established customs. To illustrate the cycle, let's start just after the American Civil War in the so-called Gilded Age. Here we find American society in the first turning, what they call a high. This is a 20-year period when society is largely in agreement about the direction it wants to go in, because it recently coalesced in the face of a crisis. Institutions are strong, and thus young adults are cautious and conformist. But then. People tire of social discipline and call for reform. A period of awakening occurs. The majority consensus is attacked in the name of greater and broader individual autonomy. The distrust in institutions left in the wake of an awakening leads to the next turning and unraveling, where in place of broad cultural identity, moral crusades polarize society over what should come next. Finally, a renewed interest in consensus that responds to crisis by banding together occurs. Society's mood shifts to a belief that coalescing and building together are the answer. The cycle then starts again with a high. Uh, the illustration is a little clear with the video. I'll link that in the show notes. But speaking of Highlander, that franchise has always relied heavily on flashback. And that's become a staple of suspenseful modern storytelling. And that brings us back to that issue of prequels and origins and period pieces having no tensions because we know the outcome. Well, if they're handled poorly, maybe, but there's more than enough precedent for them being used well. And in a metatextual sense, it sort of simulates how fans experience and engage with shared comic book universes in real life. Usually you come across a story taking place in a world already in progress. And then being intrigued, you go back and learn more about somebody who stood out to you, who was interesting to you, and you go back and try to find their beginnings. And that sort of delightful discovery and exploration of that character, filling in the blanks and having that world become richer and fuller in your mind, it isn't ruined by that first introduction. Instead, you're grateful that that set you on the path to enjoying some more. And all this is to say that if the DC films aren't all lined up chronologically in order, it's not a big deal. I doubt most of you experienced the DC universe in a strictly linear way. But if you did, definitely let me know how you managed to read everything completely linearly without ever going backwards. That's a really impressive feat and it's worth noting if true. So let me know how you did that if you did. Um, all right, let's just wrap this up. What am I thankful for with Wonder Woman? I'm just thankful that it's being made and that we're going to see it. Awesome, right? <laughs> Uh, okay, that's it. It's just a short episode so I can start my holiday. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I want you to be happy. So really embrace Thanksgiving, be good to others, fill yourself with gratitude and thankfulness, and the happiness will come. This is Dr. Awkward, your DCCU apologist, signing off. See you next time. Okay, this was a slightly shorter episode, so I've got a couple other Star Talk clips. Um, I'm just going to leave those clips for your entertainment and enjoyment. The views expressed are not necessarily my own. Um, once again, have a happy Thanksgiving. Also, uh, did you know I was in a Superman comic? Uh, no, but I believe it. You, oh, wait, you, I think I did know that. Yeah, yeah it was uh, Action Comics 140 or 142 just a few months ago back in, uh, and I was chilling with, Superman came to visit me at the Hayden Planet And did time. you tell him all these terrible things where you're like, <laughs> I don't think your skin's as powerful as you think it is. <laughs> no. Did you just tease No, him? I praised him for all the good work he's done in God. Gotham yeah. because... You mean Metropolis. Uh, I'm, oh, sorry. Am I mixing Batman? No, sorry, Metropolis. Yes, yeah, I did say Metropolis. It's almost as if those worlds aren't real <laughs> to you. <laughs> 
So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a lo- lifelong resident of Metropolis, resident yeah. of Metropolis, and so he wanted some help finding Krypton on the sky, and so I pointed out a star that with you a, think would be with, with be. a planet that, and we showed it to him in the planetarium dome. So it was kind of cool, chilling That's with awesome. Superman. Yeah, yeah. All right, are you ready? All right, what for, else you got? Go. Uh, Edwin A. Crespo asks, could Captain James T. Kirk the Starship Enterprise and its original crew defeat Superman if it came to a fight in Sol system space? Sol is the Latin word for the sun, just in case people are wondering. And the counterpart to that to Earth would be Terra, and then the moon is Luna. Earth is not Latin, so it's Terra, uh, Luna, and then you go all the way Are you up. trying to avoid whether Superman or, <laughs> or Captain Kirk would win in a fight? That's what it sounds like. So what? Okay, is- here's the thing. There's a reason why he's called Superman. Yes. Okay? I have no doubt that Superman could take the Starship Enterprise and the entire crew. Yeah. That's why they call him Superman. It's true. He's not just sort of strong man. He's not sort of kind of Superman. He's Superman. Yeah. Listen, the dude flew backwards around the Earth, stopped its, reversed its rotation. Yeah. Turn time backwards. Well, that's not something. James Kirk also flew around the sun and then saved the whales. So let's not let's no, no. not be like he's the only one who Excuse can go me. back in time. He flew past the sun in a spaceship. Yeah. Superman flew around the sun donning a cape and blue pantyhose. That's so true. that's way more powerful. But Captain Kirk is very good under pressure. He is, but if Superman goes to the tail of the yeah, Enterprise yeah, and, and punches and, it and, and punch it or swings it around yeah. lasso style, that's the end. All right, you win. Uh, no, you're right. Aliens would defeat Earthlings. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that's what it always comes down to. Right, because Superman's an alien. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah don't let him forget it. Uh-huh. Um, right, what else and then got? the other deaths of planets, Superman, I guess the new Superman, it implodes, and in the old one, it explodes. No, no, uh, yeah, well, it just, it's destroyed from within. Yeah, because yeah, they, that's they, more realistic. They, over- no. they overmined the planet. Yeah. So here's, here are people who have superpowers and super everything, and they don't know that they're overmining their own planet. I don't know. You know? Can you think of any analogies? <laughs> and they can send the baby Superman, Moses style, on a basket, yeah, you yeah. Know, a spaceship, you know. So anyhow, yeah, that could happen if you... If are, you, you are you telling me that Superman is unrealistic <laughs> you can you can destabilize a planet if you make make swiss cheese out of its innards okay that's clear but but i like the star wars destruction just that's good the, old good old-fashioned planetary explosion put some energy into it you blow get it. it up mm-hmm. all right uh so this uh, this next question from facebook from eric shaw is if superman needs the sun's rays for his strength how does he still have powers at night well, first, I didn't know he needed the sun's rays. Oh, because he comes nearer to the yellow star. Exactly. Is what, of course, the sun is actually white, but that's a separate conversation, a, in fact, that. for another show. Right. The, the, the sun is yellow when it's on the horizon, when it's dim enough for you to notice and look at it without protection. Mm-hmm. So sunsets are these beautiful yellow-orange yeah. colors. In the middle of the day, when the sun is not crawling its way through the muck and mire of the super thick horizon depth atmosphere, yeah. the sun is not yellow. It's right. white. That's right. the color of the sun, period. Right. If the sun were actually yellow, then white things would look yellow, by the way. Uh, if you put yellow light on a white sheet of paper, it looks. the white sheet of paper is yellow. So if the sun were yellow, then snow would look yellow. But Uh-oh. that's only near fire hydrants, last I checked. So, <laughs> no. but, um, so I don't see why he just doesn't have storage batteries to store up the energy from his daytime in the sun. Maybe. Why, why not? So it means, wait, Superman, if you sent him to the Arctic, where there's six months of darkness, he'd be pretty ineffective. That's the thing, yeah. And isn't that his, his like, cave that he goes to? Isn't that sort of Oh, that's in the North Pole. Oh, my gosh. Seems like the worst place for it, right? The North Pole, for six months of the year, has no sunlight. Seems like, why go there? Of all places. Should be It should be an equator cave that he goes to. Should be an equator cave. Yes. So now if it's only his proximity to the sun, whether or not he's receiving sunlight, then he's still an Earth distance from the sun. So he's still getting he's still getting some getting whatever is the magic rays from the okay. sun, whether or not it's the light. Okay, so he's he's gonna be okay. He'll, he'll think he'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we don't have to worry about him. Could Lois Lane have Superman's baby? Uh, because there, we are aliens, all right? Oh, well, okay. And would the baby kick through her womb? <laughs> busting some, busting was, out. That was funny. That was good. I would say Superman looks so humanoid right. that there's got to be sufficient overlap there to try a cross-species baby. Okay. Uh, he looks so humanoid. Yeah, he's so much like us that. Yeah, yeah. So I'd, I'd give it that. And yeah, watch out. The baby could kick out like the alien. <laughs> like like an alien. Uh, yeah. All right. That okay. was from Fernando Felipe Leviat, by the way. Wait, 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 wait. Back up to the Superman. If Spock could be half Vulcan, half human. Right. Then 
and Lois Lane can have a half super, half human Kryptonian baby. baby. Yeah, yeah, right. I'm Laura Delazana. I have a PhD in psychology. I specialize in the application and practices of happiness, the science of happiness. And my passion in this is translating the science into practical day-to-day techniques that all of us can use. So no matter what, we're not striving for perfection because that obviously is, is not attainable. So how can we make the most of those moments? Part of it is changing our circumstances in whatever may, way that means so that it brings us more happiness. Part of it is within those circumstances or no matter what we face, because we can't control all of them, obviously, making the best of what life affords us. Okay, what are the choices that I'm making, either internally or externally, to e- that are either going to increase my happiness or decrease my happiness? Finding the things that bring me joy, it's up to me then I can make those choices to bring those things into my life on a day-to-day basis. And that is more in the realm of what we refer to as emotional intelligence. It's the emotional skills, the social skills, the ability to inspire, redirect, manage both our internal world and our external world, including those relationships, that makes the biggest difference. The biggest misconception with happiness is that it's about cheer, joy, being gleeful, and in a good mood all the time. It's absolutely not what it is. That's a a mood. That's a state. And that's easy to get to. We don't need to have science and research to tell us how to, like, you know, laugh and, and have cheer. Happiness is much deeper than that. When we're talking about happiness, we're talking about thriving. We're talking about firing on all cylinders, about living to your life's potential. It includes living the full spectrum of life, the whole human experience. So what that means is that in any given moment, maybe you're mad, maybe you're sad, you're engaging with whatever is there. If there's loss, then grieve. That's part of living a life of thriving and flourishing that we call happiness. It's choosing happiness because I believe that that is in fact the key to happiness is that we can take charge by choosing consciously and intentionally our response. And I'll add a a quote by Viktor Frankl. It's one of my favorite. Viktor Frankl is a psychiatrist who survived the Nazi concentration camp. So if anyone can say this, and he can come out of that experience saying this, pretty profound. He says, between a stimulus and a response is a space. And in that space, we have the power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. That's what I believe the key to happiness is. Choosing our response to choose positivity and possibility, no matter what we face. You're the answer, son.